Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. In some school districts in America, Mother's Day has been targeted by the cancel culture crowd. Some schools have decided to have a gender-neutral Parents' Day or Family Day instead. We might laugh at this extreme or get angry, but this episode examines how the gender-neutral movement is harming the daughters of our homes, churches, and nation. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 20 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Investigative journalist Abigail Schreier cites a startling fact about the troubled condition of teen girls today. She writes, this demographic, teen girls, is in the midst of the worst mental health crisis on record, with the highest rates of anxiety, self-harm, and depression ever recorded. This observation, by the way, was made before covid the isolation of which has only made it worse. There are many reasons why teen girls are in such turmoil, but certainly one of them is the flood of social media messages she receives that devalue the very thing she begins to experience about herself in puberty, that her body is made to be a mother. Every month, her body sends her a loud message that the social media influencers around her try to deny. As one scholar suggests, sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of one's life as a person. As the self is always aware of itself as an I, so this I is always aware of itself as himself or herself. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound up, not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. The ability, then, to be mothers matters profoundly in their understanding of themselves. Yet they must suppress this biological reality in today's social media culture. But instead of self-doubts and turmoil about their identity, that results from the gender-neutral cultural forces seeking to squeeze them into its mold, we want our girls to become godly, self-assured women who understand and celebrate their femininity. We want them to confidently be able to answer the question, what does it mean that God created them female? This episode seeks to put a biblical lens over the messages that our wives, daughters, and granddaughters are hearing today about motherhood so that we can better affirm their feminine design, even the design of those who are not called to motherhood. So let's look at three ways that motherhood is devalued in today's culture. First, in our day, feminists, who sadly are mistaken in their egalitarian approach to marriage, have rightly seen the injustice of closing doors of opportunity to women and sounded the alarm about Christian women allowing themselves to be beaten by their husbands because of their mistaken understanding of the biblical teaching to be submissive to their husbands. Feminists have also identified the hurtful way that churches almost always link femininity to marriage and the family, unfairly causing single women to feel like second-class citizens. 
and demonizing feminists who have put a spotlight on toxic masculinity would just be wrong to do. And yet, there is a horrible undermining of God's glorious design of womanhood taking place in our culture, the effect of which Christians must not ignore. Historian Sharon Slater describes radical feminism's strategy to undermine motherhood. She writes, First, convince women that motherhood is meaningless, degrading, and confining, and that childcare is an unfair burden placed on women. Convince them that fulfillment can only be found in competing with men and advancing equality in the workplace. Teach them that postponing or sacrificing professional pursuits for the benefit of their children and family is too much to ask. Better yet, repeal all laws and policies that recognize any differences between men and women. Eliminate special protections or incentives that encourage motherhood, childbearing, or the raising of one's own children, and remove quote-unquote harmful symbols that stereotype women like Mother's Day. A second widespread cultural movement today that undermines motherhood is Black Lives Matter. Although many see the slogan, Black Lives Matter, as a noble plea for equal treatment under the law, which they want to support, BLM's website explains its goal clearly. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure. One of BLM's founders, Patrice Coulors, openly states, we are trained Marxists. Their radical Marxist agenda is bent on supplanting the basic building block of the society, the family, and replacing it with the state. This organization hijacks the widespread desire to end racism into supporting a totally wrong solution to the problems in our cities. I've had the privilege of working closely with black pastors through the Great Dad Seminar, and they will tell you that single moms in poverty don't need a radical social revolution. They need a husband and a father for their children. Fatherlessness is the real villain in our cities not business owners whose shops need to be burned down. A third stream of thought about motherhood comes from the LGBTQ movement. This radical gender ideology shatters sexual personhood into five separate parts, one's biological sex, two, emotional romantic attraction, three, sexual attraction or orientation, four, gender identity, and fifthly, gender role making one's right to choose each of these categories its highest value. Sadly, advocates of this broken understanding of gender find countless ways of attacking God's design of gender and gender roles, attacks which shape our daughter's thinking. Celebrating and honoring women on Mother's Day is not being gender neutral enough for this group. Christian men today must understand the way these cultural ideologies that devalue motherhood are impacting our daughters and granddaughters. Our ladies end up rejecting much of their womanhood, apologizing for their feminine traits, questioning their own worth, and feeling driven to prove they are equal to men. So much inner peace, wholeness, and spiritual health is available to them if we can help them celebrate the glory of their design as mothers and nurturers. 
So let's look at the glory of motherhood. When I was a young church planter, at one point, our congregation had over 75 kids, five years old or under. One of my favorite pastimes during these fertile years of our church was watching young dads' behavior when their wives were pregnant. Are you okay? Have a seat. Can I get you anything? Does it feel weird having your belly stick out like that? The mothers, of course, were cool. Actually, my belly sticking out feels like the most natural thing in the world. Most dads would mumble, I'm glad I don't have to do this. And that was before the pain of the actual childbirth. Never are a husband and wife's differences more vividly displayed than when she becomes pregnant. Her body was made to bear children, to give life. The essence of femininity is to be a giver of life, a nurturer. Genesis 3.20 says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver, and it resembles the word for living. Owen Strachan and Gavin Peacock point out, for their part, women are life givers. Women give physical life to humanity, a task so great and so significant that it cannot be quantified. God has highly esteemed women by making the survival of the human race hang on their care and nurture. There is immense fulfillment and meaning for women in this truth. This life-giving role extends beyond physically giving birth. God's design of a woman's body shows us a great deal about her God-given calling. Since creation matters so much to God, we might expect the woman's physical body to give clues to femininity. She is designed to receive her husband and surround him with warmth and love. Her breasts are made to nurture, and her life-giving womb nourishes and surrounds her developing child. Creation reveals and Scripture confirms that the call of femininity is to provide life-giving nurture. The love of a husband calls him to help his wife flourish by providing whatever she needs from the garden. But a woman's love is giving herself, surrounding loved ones with her personal attention and care. Although Western culture has greatly devalued the feminine calling to motherhood and to a nurturing role, in God's economy, giving personal care and love to those who surround her life is the highest of all callings. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There is in the feminine heart a nurturing instinct, but it is one that some in the culture today sneer at. In this cultural moment, many young women are being told that child raising is a lower calling than pursuing a career. Moms today, unlike most women in history, are torn between their career, which they have devoted years preparing for, and their call to motherhood. Author Nancy Piercy describes her inner tumult when she got pregnant as a graduate student. She says, I was profoundly ambivalent about this pregnancy. What would having a child mean for my future? How could I have children and still grow professionally? The only way I knew to pursue my deepest interests to fulfill my calling before the Lord was in the world of ideas through academic study. But having a child seemed to pose a profound threat to the possibilities of continuing my studies. When men have families, most are able to continue working in their chosen fields. 
though admittedly they often do make trade-offs between family and career advancement. At times, I confess, it struck me as decidedly unfair that women should experience such intense pressure to choose between the two major tasks of adult life, between pursuing a calling and raising the next generation. After she had her baby, she, like many career-focused women, was astonished at the intensity of the love bond she formed with her newborn. On the one hand, she did not want to leave him to go back to her career. Yet, she believed that she had gifts that matched the calling she could only pursue in the world of academia. This workplace versus home choice faced by modern women is not a dilemma that has been faced by women throughout most of history, because the workplace was the home. To illustrate this truth, let's look at family life in America before the Industrial Revolution and how the Industrial Revolution changed all that. In the colonial period in America, families lived much like they have lived for millennia. The vast majority lived on farms or in peasant villages. Productive work to make a living was done by family households, often including members of the extended family, apprentices, servants, and hired hands. Stores, offices, and workshops were located in the front room. Living quarters were either upstairs or in the rear. Interestingly, that design was followed in building the United States White House in the 1790s. The integration of home with work had huge implications for family life. Nancy Piercy points out, the husband and wife worked side by side on a daily basis, sharing in the same economic enterprise. For a colonial woman, marriage meant to become co-worker beside her husband. Learning new skills in butchering, silversmith work, printing, or upholstering, whatever special skills the husband's work required. A useful measure of a society's treatment of women is the status of widows, and historical records show that in colonial days it was not uncommon for widows to carry on the family enterprise after their husbands died, which means they had learned the skills required to keep the business going on their own. Of course, as in nearly all societies, women were also responsible for a host of household tasks requiring a wide range of skills, spinning wool and cotton, weaving it into cloth, sewing the family's clothes, gardening, preserving food, preparing meals, making soap, buttons, candles, and often developing a cottage industry that produced additional family income through her creative skills. Now, colonial America was not a panacea. Yet the wife, partnering with her husband at home, both in earning a living and raising the children, seems quite similar to the portrait of godly womanhood revealed to us in Proverbs 31. The fact that work and child-rearing took place at home meant that mothers were able to combine economically productive work with raising children. It also meant that fathers were much more involved in raising children than they are today. Well, the Industrial Revolution built a chasm between the workplace and the home. Now, technology always has a good side, so this is not to demonize what has happened in manufacturing. But during the era of history, 1770 to 1870, the development of steel, expansion of the railroads for transporting goods, and use of steam as power sources to replace human labor led to the building of factories and mass production. 
Whereas men used to work at home with their wives and families, they had little choice but to follow their work out of their households and fields and into factories and offices. These are some of the results of this transformation of society. First, the physical presence of fathers at home dropped sharply. The most striking feature of child-rearing manuals of the mid-19th century, the height of the Industrial Revolution, is the disappearance of references to fathers. Because in America, the home had always been the place where children are taught moral character and religion, women began to be looked up to as those who were custodians of religion and moral character. This was a stunning reversal. In colonial days, husbands and fathers had been admonished to function as the moral and spiritual leaders of the household. But now men are being told that they are naturally crude, appetite-driven animals who need to learn virtue from their wives. Next, the impact of this work-home divide may have been worse for women. The home ceased being a locus of economic productivity. Instead of enjoying a sense of economic indispensability, women became dependent, having to live off the wages of their husbands. Next, because household industries were replaced by factory products, women at home with their children were no longer able to utilize the full array of their gifts. They couldn't compete, but only those related to motherhood and household tasks. Next, not surprisingly, this cultural expectation that women should be at home and not at work spawned the feminist movement, which was rooted in the rights of women to have their own career outside the home. And finally, wives who used to be economically productive and care for the family with their husbands are now alone in their work. This natural partnership is gone. It could be argued that the woman's role as a mother became overvalued. She is criticized if she doesn't find essentially all of her fulfillment by being home with the kids, when that is not the picture of the Proverbs 31 woman. Again, feminism began as a revolt against this traditional female role. To a large extent, it was inspired by Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique in 1963, which began as a survey of Friedan's former classmates at Smith and grew into a polemic about the psychological frustrations experienced by women who exchanged the relatively egalitarian world of the college campus for the uncomfortable concentration camps of middle-class suburbia. Restless and sometimes envious of their husband's careers, Frieden's trapped housewives, quote-unquote, wanted to pursue the goal of freedom and autonomy on an equal basis with men. Frieden's message continues to shape the current generation of daughters who are told the Bible oppresses women by teaching traditional family roles, that dad goes off to an exciting career while mom is stuck caring for the kids. To the contrary, though, Scripture teaches that both Adam and Eve are gifted and given the task of Genesis 1 of building culture. The Proverbs 31 woman's contribution to the economic welfare of the family, again, is immeasurable. Adam's call to provide for his family materially is clear in Genesis 2.15, but that call is joined with the call to ensure that his wife utilizes all of her gifts. However, it is a denial of God's creation design to deny that she is created to nurture. She is called to help Adam build culture, but her physical body and scripture tells us her primary calling is to nurture her family and build a home for them. 
Well, in the 1970s, second wave feminism made the right to an abortion a woman's right. Sadly, feminists' legitimate concern for women's rights became politicized by the abortion industry. The unwillingness of pro-choice advocates to even discuss how the rights of unborn children need to weigh into tough abortion decisions reflects a tragic devaluing of children, which goes hand-in-hand with devaluing motherhood. Before finishing, let's look at one other topic, being a nurturer when not a mom. Although starting somewhere from 10 to 13, a young woman's body sends her a monthly reminder that God designed her for motherhood, some women never marry, though they would love to, and some women are childless. The church needs to loudly proclaim that utilizing her physical capability to conceive children is not what makes her feminine. Rather, her body just points to her real womanhood, being designed to nurture, to give her personal care to others. Even if she is unmarried, childless, or postmenopausal, she has a vital instinct built into her as a woman with 30 trillion XX genes to nurture others, to give herself her personal care to those surrounding her. Being a nurturer is not all there is to womanhood, but it is at the core of God's design. I want to close by pointing us to perhaps the most famous mother, or second most after Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the world, though she herself never bore her own children. Her name was Mary Teresa Bojazak's Hugh. How about that for Albanian? In 1950, she founded the Missionaries of Charity, a group of 4,500 Roman Catholic women who nurtured the needy around them in 133 countries. Though she herself died in 1997, these unmarried nuns still manage homes for people who are dying of HIV, AIDS, leprosy, and tuberculosis. They also run soup kitchens, dispensaries, mobile clinics, children's and family counseling programs, as well as orphanages and schools. They know that for suffering people, there is nothing like a woman's tender care. How fitting that she who never bore her own child is known as Mother Teresa. To summarize this episode, we began by noting that the outward measures of today's teenage girls' inner turmoil, rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide, are the highest ever recorded. The self-doubts, hormonal changes, and uncomfortable physiological changes of puberty are hard enough. But today, our daughter or granddaughter must endure an assault upon her very creation design, the ability to be a mother. The devaluing of motherhood directly by second and third wave feminism, Black Lives Matter's efforts to undermine the family unit, and the radical gender ideology of the LGBTQ movement all combine to undermine her confidence in her own body and in the way that God personally designed her. We noted that the carton that God delivers femininity in, her body, is consistent with God's idea of womanhood revealing that she is made to nurture, to surround others with her love and personal care. 
We tried to dig into the tough issue that women face at this cultural moment of choosing between their career and motherhood callings by giving a historic perspective about the impact of the Industrial Revolution, how career tended to move outside of the home, how feminism may have started off in the direction of a biblical balance, a woman is given gifts to develop culture and to nurture, but increasingly has led to the devaluing of motherhood and of children. Finally, we saw that in recovering a high regard for motherhood, we must always be mindful of deep pain, self-doubts, and depression that go along with our daughters who never marry or experience childlessness. Perhaps it helps to remember one of the most famous mothers of all, who was herself childless, but spawned a worldwide movement to provide tender, personal, womanly care to millions of those dying across the earth. For further prayerful thought, number one, why does the gender-neutral movement and devaluing of motherhood harm a teen girl today? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, our May series, Gloriously Feminine, continues as I introduce a mini booklet that we're publishing entitled Our Daughters and the Transgender Craze, a grace-shaped, truth-driven plan to respond. Today, whole groups of female friends in college, high school, and middle school are coming out as transgender, including teen girls from our churches and Christian families. The last three weeks of May, we will answer the question, how are we to respond to this phenomenon with wisdom, grace, and truth as elder and parental caregivers of our Christian daughters? Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about it as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.